What makes a great Chief Information Officer? Today we explore this topic with one of the world's foremost CIO advisors. Peter High is a consultant and an author. His latest book is called Getting to Nimble. What are the characteristics of the best, most innovative CIOs? Well, it begins, Michael, with getting the basics right. Every CIO, like any executive, needs to understand what are the building blocks that I've been assigned and make sure that they are operating well. And so, you know, this is just kind of the blocking and tackling that, frankly, there's still some organizations that don't always necessarily get those things right. Uh, making sure that the technology that the company is using is up and available, doing what it's supposed to be doing, that it is secure, uh, increasingly an important thing given the growing complexity of cybersecurity issues that, uh, that abound. Um, but whereas the domain historically of chief information officers has largely been on the bottom line of the profit equation, that is thinking about cost cutting and efficiencies within the organization, uh, taking manual processes and, and rendering them uh, into repeatable processes with, with technology aiding them now to a much greater extent, obviously with the use of artificial intelligence and algorithms more generally speaking. But the best of them are the ones that are, that are also focusing on the top line of the profit equation. They're thinking about how to grow revenue. And this, I, I would say, is still by no means the majority of CIOs, Michael. It is um, still the domain of the, the, the A's and A pluses among that community who recognize the ability to uh, have a profound impact on a company's customers and their experience, as well as, of course, the employees and, and their experience within the organization, and recognize that it's a very strategic perch that they have been given, that they touch the processes writ large of the entire organization. And if they're doing their job right, uh, um, touching and influencing the, the experience of customers in a way that will help the, the company uh, develop better and, and new uh, revenue streams uh, for the long term as well. That's quite interesting. So you say that the very best, the A plus CIOs have a, quote, profound impact on customers. The Washington Post I alluded to earlier, uh, the media space, uh, you and I uh, play in the media space in our own ways. This is, and, and, and you can argue the sorts of things that we are doing are sort of a disruptive forces, I suppose, in traditional media, towards traditional media. And uh, it is a, it's an industry uh, to paint with a broad brushstroke that has been going through trying times for some time as, as uh, a lot of traditional players have been put out of business and even some of the best players have had to have a dramatic rethink as to how they do business and how they derive revenue. Um, the Washington Post was no different. It was a company that was uh, bleeding talent. It was uh, losing advertising revenue to the likes of the Googles and the Facebooks of the world. And they were peddling a product in news, a very good news source, I must say. It is my hometown paper, even though it is also kind of a national and international uh, newspaper as I live in the Washington area. Uh, but it was languishing uh, as some of the digital native organizations were beating them at their own game. And I was starting to say that, that what they were peddling is uh, people were expecting it to be free, which is not a great business model to be in. Well, uh, enter uh, the chief information officer, Shailesh Prakash in 2012. Uh, the, the experience for the customer needs to be compelling and representative of the fact that um, it needs to be a, an excellent experience in the physical paper, on the phone, on the PC, on the tablets, however they wish to consume the product. And so whereas traditionally the digital landscape and the traditional landscape operated as uh, in parallel, but as two worlds, he was a force in bringing that together. And in so doing made for a great experience for the readers uh, in whatever form they chose to consume the product. 
Uh, but I'll, the, the thing that the, the best part of the story in my mind is Shailesh uh, took it a step further in diagnosing one of the big issues that the paper was facing, which was its platform was very kludgy, an issue that so many different periodicals uh, have had historically. And in rectifying that and developing a homegrown new platform, realized they were really kind of uh, leapfrogging the industry. And he then created a new revenue source that is uh, growing to the tune of $100 million in revenue per year now uh, for other periodicals to use. And so in creating a value proposition that was more compelling to folks like me in Washington and others who are, are readers of the Washington Post in various devices and forms, he also then created a, an experience that uh, became the envy of other periodicals, periodicals that were willing to pay the Washington Post for its use. So Peter, what you just described, sure, it's the CIO, but is that person a technologist? Are they a business person? Should we even be making this distinction? That's a really good question, one that's uh, been up for debate for a long time in various forms. Should a CIO, uh, is it necessary for him or her to be an engineer by background, to have grown up in a technology field in some way, to understand the inner workings of it, given its complexity. Um, and and I, I will not uh, necessarily side on one way or the other definitively, as I've seen people without technical backgrounds be some of the best CIOs. Uh, they oftentimes will need a CTO or a, uh, a partner in crime who does understand the technical details at a, at a level that perhaps they don't. But, um, but I think the, 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 the best case scenario is you have somebody who does understand the technology, who understands the ones and zeros of what the, the company, what the, the department is working with, but also has the business acumen um, to be able to understand how, does, how is business created in this company? Um, how do we impact, as I mentioned before, the top line and the bottom line, especially in public organizations where that's so, so important, and, uh, and will be tracked by Wall Street on a regular basis to gauge success or lack thereof. Um, this becomes, I think, increasingly uh, an important part of what uh, CIOs need to do. And so as a result, having that broader perspective becomes so important. And let me, if I can just share a quick story relative to that, Michael. Um, Vanguard. Vanguard is a, you know, the largest mutual fund company, one of the largest financial services organizations as a result of that, based in Malvern, Pennsylvania, just outside of, of Philadelphia. Their CIO, another one of the, the greats in, to my mind, John Marcante is his name. He's been with the company after a period of GE for a couple of decades now in, at Vanguard. And his pathway is not so dissimilar from others uh, within Vanguard. He joined in, in IT, and as he was viewed as a high potential in his uh, career started to take off, they began to give him assignments outside of IT. And what did this do? This leavened his experience with uh, a greater and more uh, deeper understanding as to how value is created. How, how do you, why do customers pay us anything? And how does that go up? And uh, how do we think about the development of new products? He ended up running a different business. He had his own profit and loss statement, a PL uh, within one of the businesses at Vanguard before coming back to become the chief information officer. I should also mention, by the way, Tim Buckley, the chief executive officer of the company, is himself a former chief information officer of the organization. So I think, um, and this is a general point beyond the, the IT department, those companies that think of themselves as talent factories, where they provide people a figurative 
a semester abroad or year abroad, or maybe it's multiple years abroad. I say that figurative, figuratively. In some cases, it could be literally if it's an international part of your business, but certainly adjacent areas, uh, giving them experiences in other business units or divisions of the company, such that when they ascend, perhaps into the original uh, division they were a part of, they do so with a richness and a fuller understanding, as I say, how value is created and therefore have a better appreciation as to how they, and by, by uh, extension, of course, their teams can impact that. So it's not just a matter of understanding what the company, the activities that the company performs or the products, but it's a deeper understanding of the nature of how the business is creating value and what that means and represents to the to the customers. That's right. Exactly right. I, I think it's, and, and thus part of the reason I mentioned earlier, Michael, uh, the need to spend time with customers. Uh, still, there are many organizations where the CIO and his or her team are not given access to customers. That Look, that's the domain of the CEO or the marketing department, the sales department, perhaps product and service areas of the organization, but not UIT. Uh, yours is a purview that's within our walls, uh, not outside of them. And what I would say is, look, as we all become more digitally savvy, and this applies B2B or B2C, um, that as we all become more digitally savvy, the chances are that the end user, whether it is a company and its employees in a B2B scenario, or it's individuals like you and me, consumers of a, of a product, let's say, understanding uh, the personas of the customers and the way in which they are interacting with you, especially now to a much greater extent, almost across the board in some digital fashion, uh, not having that person at the table providing some kind of uh, input to that becomes, uh, you know, a, a risk. I would say for a lot of organizations. So it's a combination of the company, of course, seeing that need. But of course, I, I would say, and I would urge the CIOs who are listening today that if if I'm not describing your experience, that you push for that and you provide the rationale as to the value that the greater levels of value that you and your team can contribute as a result of that. So the question then becomes, how does a CIO get there? What is difficult about it, of course, is uh, the executive may have the desire to do so, but if the culture is such and the rest of the C-suite is such that they are loath to, uh, to allow that executive to have that reach and that influence, it's an uphill battle, frankly. And I know a great number of CIOs who've had this ambition, recognize that this is the right path, and have chosen, frankly, to take themselves uh, out of the current environment and find themselves a new post where that might be possible. Look, what I would say is this is as much uh, a story of reaching out to the rest of the organization and telling them what's possible. This art of the possible conversation becomes really important. And so much of it needs to be, look, I'm asking for greater levels of responsibility, and but hold me to creating new types of value in so doing. Um, as I said, there rare is it the role within a corporate structure that has as much a broad uh, set of touch points across the enterprise, and especially again, um, uh, and, and if you think about the insights that can be drawn by understanding the processes cradle to grave. Uh, in addition, of course, to the technology cradle to grave across the entire enterprise, there's a lot of value and insight that can come from that. And so I mentioned, as I mentioned earlier, first and foremost, it means getting your, your playing in your sandbox first and making sure that, you know, the sand and the toys are in the right place. I need to be careful with the analogies I choose here, but you are, you're operating well with your original set of, of undertakings. So once that is in place and operating well, beginning to, to expand, uh, the possibilities by conveying the art of the possible, by signing up for uh, new new types of value to be created. Um, that's very important as well. But I, underneath all of that, 
a CIO, CDO, CTO, the head of technology and digital is just one person. If they're not changing the culture within inside the department that they're a part of, then these are just words. These are ambitions without the ability to act upon them. And so it also means hiring the right sort of people that recognize what uh, recognize that art of the possible and want to make the change that's described. It means developing the sort of narrative and mission and vision within that department to to become sort of a rallying cry of sorts for those in it to make the change necessary in order to do that as well. So I, I, it's not for the faint of heart, Michael. I don't mean to suggest that this is a light switch that can be flipped on as a result of it dawning, to some, dawning upon someone that this is a, a worthy journey to pursue. But I will say that those organizations that do pursue this and go through the steadfast, uh, are, remain steadfast in the, in the change that's necessary are the ones who are going to succeed. We have another question, this time from LinkedIn. This is from Mustafa Radwan, and it relates to the aspirational CIO goal, Peter, that you were just describing. And Mustafa asks, he says, how can we make sure that CIOs have a seat at the table post-pandemic, i.e. board meetings, strategy, formulation workshops, and so on. So I think the question is very similar. How can CIOs achieve that level of CIO greatness that you were describing earlier? As I mentioned before, this has been a tremendous accelerator for digital transformation. Um, All things being equal, look, if you're in a hospitality space or an airline or certain parts of the restaurant uh, industry, for example, the food industry, this has been very trying. And even if you you have you're a leader in that space, you've been you've been hurt as a consequence of this downturn. All things being equal, though, those companies that have thrived and been most resilient, I would say that one of the key ingredients has been the degree to which they have um, uh, remained steadfast and committed to digital transformation. I'm using a very broad topic there. There's a lot that's, that hangs under the topic of digital transformation. But those that have modernized their people practices, their processes, their technologies, rethought the way in which they develop ecosystems, uh, rethought the way in which they formulate strategy, you know, these are the ones that are that have been thriving or at least uh, doing more than surviving during these times and will have tremendous tailwinds coming out of this. And what I would say is, Mustafa, if yours is an organization, uh, and perhaps it is by virtue, if, I, if I'm uh, interpreting the question correctly, that has not yet reached that, that degree of digital transformation across your enterprise, I would say this is the time to point to those points of difference, the leaders in these various fields and the steps that they've undertaken in order to thrive during these very uncertain times, uh, to emulate the, the pathways that they have chosen, to choose more modern practices relative to the categories I mentioned, by the way, the five categories that are featured in my, in my upcoming book as well, um, that, that it's important to rethink these sorts of things in order to have that increased relevance. One more, more, more thing, uh, Mustafa, you mentioned the board level parts of this. There are some trends afoot that I think are going to continue to make IT and the, the, the tech leader, tech and digital leader, uh, increasingly relevant to that. First, unfortunately, is cybersecurity. That if, if there is a board out there that is not concerned with cybersecurity, that is a big, big problem. Uh, and so as a result of that, people with technical backgrounds, certainly the CISO of an organization, if, if they have one, hopefully they do, uh, and, and typically the, the uh, tech and digital chief, the CIO, CDO, CTO, ought to be getting a lot more turns with the board as a result of the defensive part, the risk part 
of those sorts of conversations. Although increasingly, and this is one of the reasons why we're seeing a, a growing cadre of CIOs joining the boards of the board of directors of public companies, is also for reasons of offense and opportunity that there's a better need to uh, use one's data to make better decisions and organize it accordingly. That there are that we need to have better insights and, and advice from a board member who uh, who can help us think about reshaping products and services in the digital world, rendering not only digital versions of that, but brand new offerings that are themselves primarily digital. And I would say the CIO, CDO, CTO's role in impacting that at the board level is only going to increase as a result of this combination of a need for uh, better defensive strategies and, and conversation at the board level, as well as those offensive ones as well. And we have another question from Twitter. You can see I really try to prioritize the questions that come in from listeners. What are the biggest business challenges facing companies in 2021 that CIOs can help solve? One of the key aspects of that, I talked about data. I alluded to that briefly. Uh, and I, I, I mentioned earlier that I convene in small gatherings and large ones, and as well as just the interviews that I do. Uh, I speak with a lot of technology executives. And one of the really interesting findings as the um, uh, as I've been polling probably, let's say, four or 500 of these executives as to their priorities, is data in all of its form, data management, uh, you know, data analysis, uh, data security, certainly, uh, is near the top, if not the top priority for a lot of these organizations. However, if, in asking the follow-up question, as I've often done in these, this, the, the polling that I do, how mature are your digital, uh, rather your data strategy um, activities, the level of maturity is very low. So the desire to reach maturity and the investments behind that is rising, but the, uh, the, the ability to formulate a great plan and act upon that plan is really low. Let me give you another quick data point. The average tenure right now for chief data officers is, uh, some would say, roughly a year. Uh, the data that I've been seeing is, puts it right around a year, which suggests that uh, organizations are bringing in executives in the hope that this can be kind of that, that alligator can be wrestled to the ground. Uh, but they, they realize that it's too difficult to do so and that jettison the executive fairly quickly, either replacing him or her or perhaps going for a time without one. And so what I would say is, uh, this is something that w why not uh, the CIO uh, getting very firmly involved, if not leading this area of activity? Uh, every business has data that it is collecting uh, on its operation, on its employees, on its uh, customers, on the, the health of its the, the, the health and growth of its service offering or product offering. Finding ways to be the source of better organization of that data, security of that data, uh, to, to facilitate the uh, drawing of insights from it to make better decisions. This is a profound impact that the, the technology executive can have for his or her organization. This is real uh, opportunity, again, for all, both, both ends of the profit equation to, to make a, a, an enormous impact. And I would certainly encourage and push uh, those CIOs who are listening to do so. And another question from Twitter, again from Arsalan Khan, how should CIOs handle the politics inside organizations that sometimes militate against the CIO taking the kind of expansive role that you've just described? And, I, and I'll, just, I'll just amplify that and say that when any business executives, any business exec tries to take on a broader, more expansive role, there will be folks that push back. 
That's a great point. Actually, the data, the data point really proves that in many ways because the data resides in so many different areas. And as a new executive comes in and says, look, I, you know, and perhaps is given the mandate or attempts to seize the mandate of, of taking control to some degree, it feels like a loss of autonomy. It may well be a loss of autonomy depending upon that person's uh, uh, remit. And so the politics of this, the change management aspects of this, the communications aspects of these sorts of changes are really important. I cannot underscore that enough, that recognizing that when you're moving people's cheese, they are going to react negatively. Many of them will react negatively if they don't understand what's in it for me, what's in it for the broader company. Now, let me give you a a different example, uh, Arsalan, that um, when digital as a topic began to emerge in a lot of organizations and the the development of digital strategies uh, became more of a thing, there was a thought process that this was largely a discipline that would, and the executive, in fact, would emerge out of the marketing department. And indeed, many of the initial CDOs were marketing executives. And the, the, what that meant was the company was saying, the companies that were, were uh, drawing that conclusion were saying this is pr- predominantly an external uh, lens that we need to put to this, that the opportunity from digital is one in digitizing our products and services and our customer experience. And who knows that better than our marketing folks? Um, a lot of those early CDOs, again, painting with a broad brushstroke, some of those have uh, succeeded wildly, but many of them have not because, of course, they're uh, pretty deep technical details that one needs to master in order to get this right. And so at a minimum, that executive needs to have a strong partnership with the CIO. What I would say is if the CIO is Mr. Or Ms. inside and outside, again, has uh, a deep appreciation for how the operation and all of its processes work, while also having great customer touch points, that that really positions that executive to to be the um, the source of digital transformation, the leader of digital transformation. But even in that, as 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 the point makes, there is an external point to it. There are there are many different parts of the organization that have primarily that as their domain or an area of focus. And so navigating that appropriately, get, providing due deference uh, to other leaders uh, when, when you're when you're part of a change that could seem threatening to them. Very, very important. Uh, that's why I think you know EQ and leadership, especially that that's not necessarily been the uh, the the highest por- uh, um, the highest score uh, on on the, the various gradations for CIOs. They've been more IQ than EQ, I would say, historically speaking. We see now a, a growing number of them that have equal measures of the two because understanding how people work, understanding the threat somebody else might feel, and tackling it head on, frankly, and and making sure that. That, that the different executives are drawing conclusions together and you know marching arm in arm towards this better better uh, reality in the future becomes so much more important. So the emotional aspects, emotional quotient, emotional intelligence aspects of communication and collaboration have become, can we say, table stakes today to achieve CIO greatness? I, I think so. Yeah, Michael, I don't think that that is... That's, uh, too much of an overstatement. Uh, this is, if in fact the the CIO has taken uh, his or her rightful place uh, as a true chief in the organization. And by the way, I, I mentioned earlier that very few in the initial stages reported to CEOs. It now, for six or seven years now, according to my friends in the executive uh, recruiting space, uh, has been the pr- the primary, the the predominant relationship, which is a, itself a great sign as to that that leader becoming a true chief, a peer of the rest of the chiefs. Uh, if in fact that's going to be the case, one needs to 
you know, have that exude that empathy and understand the kind of psychological aspects, frankly, in being a great leader and motivating a team and in uh, asking them to make great change and do, do new things that were not part of their, their purview previously uh, of, of, you know, as I say, massaging the egos of a great number of other executives who are going to be uh, necessary to move with them in order to, for success to be achieved. So absolutely, I would say that that's, that's a key ingredient. Peter, how should CIOs think about the way they invest today in order to help drive the company and drive their role towards that goal of, or that paradigm archetype of CIO greatness that we've been talking about? The flexibility one has from a financial perspective naturally is different today than it was a year and a half ago. And hopefully uh, we'll be in a better situation in some months ahead once we're, we can officially have uh, COVID-19 in the, uh, in the rearview mirror. But what I would say is a couple of different things. First of all, part of the modernization that is necessary within uh, IT means variableizing your cost structure to a much greater extent. A lot of the flexibility in IT departments have historically been minimized by virtue of the fact that there was so much hard iron that was purchased with long depreciation schedules. And uh, therefore, the, the overall budget, a tremendous amount of it was spoken for on January 1st or whenever the first day of the fiscal year was without a lot of flexibility. And IT has a large role to play in variableizing what it can from among those. I, I think of, of course, cloud technologies and as a service technology as great examples of that those that can scale up and scale back uh, with greater ease. And hopefully, although I wouldn't say that the cloud computing is primarily a cost play, but managing it correctly can, in fact, improve your cost basis, um, at least for, for some periods of time, depending upon its use and how it is used. And uh, what I would say is it's important that as, as the IT leader is finding savings where one can, that a, a portion, if not a, the lion's share of that, be invested in innovation. Innovation, and I would say now, this is a, also a very interesting time to bring up that topic because in a lot of corrections, the innovation faucet gets turned off. And innovation is a muscle. It, it atrophies uh, when it is not used uh, enough for, for a long period of time. And it's important to keep that, that, that faucet on, to, to continue to grow those, uh, those muscles, uh, to mix metaphors here. Because I, it, 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 um, once we get to a new, new normal, the next normal, if you will, and investment cycles become more typical, perhaps, uh, not having the innovation resources in place and mindset and culture can be deleterious as to the impact the organization can make. And let's, and let's face it, of course, innovation is not all about developing like the next great product. It is wonderful when it is. Innovation happens in, in ways of finding cost, uh, cost savings or efficiencies by doing things better in new ways. Uh, so there are a variety of ways in which that innovation can be shaped to fit the times. But that, that investment portfolio that you ask about, I would say, first of all, that responsible, being very responsible with the dollars you're given and shaving away where you can or where it's appropriate, but always making the case for using a portion of that savings uh, to, to, to keep that uh, innovation pipeline alive and growing. Which then begs the question, to what extent should CIOs be investing in innovation versus in the stability of existing systems? Historically, that number was so heavily weighted towards maintenance, you know, 85% yeah. or whatever it is, which crowds out the innovation. So what is the right balance? 
Yeah, no, you're right. That, that That's precisely the sort of statistic that I was referencing as well, Michael, that, you know, if 85% of the budget is spoken for uh, before the, the fiscal year has even begun, well, then how, how much new and innovative, uh, how many new and innovative things can you really be doing? Um, so, Look, the, the 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 ratio will be different company to company. I can't tell you it should be 50-50 no matter who you are and what business or, or industry you're in. But certainly it should be uh, getting closer to parity. And, and I think perhaps uh, if done especially well, as I've seen in some cases, uh, where, where it's even below. I've seen some companies go from 70-30 uh, in terms of that kind of uh, run the business technology uh, and flipping that over as such that it's only 30%, leaving your, yourself, leaving oneself a lot more budget, so long as the case is made to keep some of that sacred. Some of it, no doubt, would be taken as as cost savings, perhaps for, perhaps for the enterprise, but keeping a good portion of that as new investments to make for the future as well. And that that is again, it gets back to your you 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 raise maintenance as one of the key areas, and indeed that is one of those. And modern technology doesn't require maintenance in the same way. It actually, frankly, also disrupts the way in which we think about the teams that we're putting together and the makeup of that team as well. And so. There are a lot. There are options. Options abound, really, uh, in terms of ways in which that efficiency, that sort of combination of uh, modernizing the the footprint of the organization to be able to do uh, and and have more flexibility for for the new and the innovative, uh, and and therefore one doesn't need to be at the bleeding edge in order to accomplish these things. We have another comment from Arsalan Khan. Arsalan's a regular listener, and I always appreciate your questions, Arsalan. And he asks about the impact of no-code and low-code products in helping drive down costs while increasing, enabling innovation. This is a, a really interesting trend that's rising. We see a number of my friends in the venture capital community, for instance, have been plowing a lot of money into uh, companies that are supplying this. And in fact, actually, um, you know, th there are companies uh, that are emerging that have that have been created by CIOs um, uh, that uh, so G Gary Hoberman, who used to be the co-CIO of MetLife, has has come up uh, with a has developed a company called Uncork, who uh, that, that provides low code, no code uh, technology for organizations. I, I think it, it is clearly part of the answer, like with like so many of the modern technologies, whether it's, you know, containers and microservices, broader use of APIs, um, all of this, I think these are weapons that need to be uh, introduced as part of the arsenal of the modern CIO. But I do need to stress that a strategy needs to be there. Uh, it's not just investing in these willy-nilly. It is important to develop pilots uh, and, and test cases for each to get a, a better understanding as to how it, op how, how it operates and the, the value that the organization can derive what the best use cases of them are and where they aren't. That's very important is developing kind of the, the, uh, the negative uh, case, if you will, and understanding the limits of some of this technology expansion. But as I referenced before, part of the art of the possible is continued experimentation as these trends rise and determining whether or not there's an application back into the enterprise. And I would certainly say that low code, no code uh, is no exception to that. I believe that that needs to be a weapon in the arsenal of the modern CIO. If the modern CIO is first and foremost a business person, when you start talking about containers, microservices, APIs, low-code, no-code, and other detailed technology discussions, that moves out of the 
business person domain and deeply into the tech technical domain. And so how should how can a CIO reconcile these two different dimensions, the business and the highly technical? You know, as I alluded to earlier as well, I, I think it's it 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 doesn't mean if 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 a CIO has come into to the post without any sort of technology background, and I can think of uh, several of them off the top of my head, they need to be um, they they need to be modest enough <laughs> to recognize their limitations and find other people who are going to fill in the gaps because this still is a technology role. Uh, in in stating that to a greater extent it is a business role, it doesn't mean that the technology goes away. Of course, that is you know, a fundamental part of the domain and understanding, uh, you know, kind of the, the root of the technology, the, the domain, the portfolio that is currently being managed and how that is going to be uh, managed and, and modernized over time needs to be part of what uh, CIOs do. Um, and so, as I say, if, if, if a CIO comes into the post without that, that, um, that ability, uh, yet at least, number one, they need to get a great advisor inside or outside of the organization. Uh, number two, they need to have uh, understand that it will, it will take a period of time for them to be able to speak at a on a level playing field uh, with the rest of the team and 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 uh, and represent this appropriately. And and so that really then takes me to the third, which is a degree of learning agility, which by the way I think is one of the key ingredients of really any company, but certainly uh, any IT department, given how fast trends are changing. It means being you know thirsting for the knowledge of what's coming next and understanding it and playing around with it and drawing conclusions about it uh, and then translating it back with great stories and narratives as to the potential value to the rest of the organization, being that guide and translator for those who are even less technical uh, among the rest of the staff. So that's something IT uh, teams need to have as a basic ingredient writ large across that team. But I, I would say the leader, him or herself, needs to embody that. And uh, and so as a result of that, especially for those who are less technical, it means immersing themselves in deep training and reading and uh, experimenting and frankly, collaborating with the rest of the team in order to, to grow that knowledge within them. We have a question from Melissa Drew on LinkedIn, and she asks a, an important question. She says, the role and definition of the CIO has constantly been expanding. How do you see this role expanding further in the near future, i.e. the shift of roles and responsibilities? So in other words, where is the CIO role going in 2021? Indeed, I've done a story, I've done a series, uh, both as part of my Forbes column and my podcast on these CIO pluses. I alluded that to that earlier. And it's been fascinating to see the, the plus roles uh, that have been added to the CIO um, a, a few of the prominent ones that have been growing are product-centric ones. I mentioned Shailesh Prakash at the Washington Post as an example of that. So technology and product uh, together. Uh, Don Weinstein is another example at ADP as somebody who has both those sets of responsibilities. There are also leaders that are taking operations responsibilities, technology and operations. I recently interviewed uh, Kathy Besant at Bank of America, who is the chief technology and operations officer, for example. Uh, Mojgan Lefebvre at, at uh, Travelers uh, holds those two, two posts as well. And especially, although it's a micro version of the rationale behind this, as you think about DevOps and the sort of combinations of the development side of technology and the operations, not only within technology, but the broader business, there, there's an ability now to have a greater role to play in both of those, those worlds. And so I think that that's a, a growing and will continue to be uh, a, a, an adjacency that is logical for, for technologists to take on as well. 
Um, I, in my podcast last week, I interviewed uh, Sally Gilligan, who is the chief information officer and chief strategy officer of Gap. And that's a combination we've seen several times as well. And the, the, uh, the rationale behind that is there is almost no organization within the, the uh, enterprise that, uh, that needs to impact every other part of the organization quite like IT. The, Michael, the, the, the example I often give is you know, the average HR executive has the internal vector, as I mentioned before, the, the, the population of people within the company. The marketing division uh, has an external lens, as we talked about in a variety of different ways today as well. Uh, the great executives in those two, two uh, who lead those two parts of the business probably would understand a bit about each other's uh, strategy, but the IT leader, by contrast, needs to breathe life into both of those and everyone in between. And so where there is a lack of good strategic planning uh, process and hygiene, you can argue that uh, the IT leader is maybe most disadvantaged by any sort of lack of clarity there. And so oftentimes we're seeing CIOs fill the gap by creating a process and, and convening a set of conversations across the C-suite and the executive ranks. And in so doing, in essence, inserting themselves to take over that process. So as I say, Sally is representative of, of what, what I've seen several times over as uh, CIOs taking on the strategy role as well. And I think there's reason to believe there will be others who, are, who walk in, in, her, in her footsteps. What should CIOs do now to ensure that they remain relevant to their organization going through 2021? One of the things that I think has really been lacking in organizations has been uh, a, a real understanding as to how the different parts and pieces work. Somebody who goes to get an MBA will take finance and marketing and sales and you know entrepreneurship and management, accounting, et cetera. Uh, but once we join the ranks of a business, if you're in IT, do you really understand how finance is doing their job, how marketing is doing theirs? What I would say is the IT leader could, to, could do an enormous service for the enterprise that he or she is a part of by suggesting that there be 101 and 201 and maybe even 301 courses taught by, including themselves, by the way, from a technology lens, as to this is what we do. This is how we create value. This is the language that we use. This is what we are managing. And, and push the marketing executive to develop the same sort of curriculum, not just for marketing's use, but for everyone's use. Not just do the same within finance, within a product area. And certainly the products and services ought to have their own sort of training that happens with frequency as well. I think if the IT leader were to chair that the value that he or she would be driving would be very significant. And in the, at the process, assuming that he or she is a consumer of the materials that are developed, well then, gosh, their radar will be that much more fine-tuned as to where to, to point uh, the team to create the greatest value across the enterprise. So the bottom line is, at the end of the day, it really comes down to a point you made earlier, which is it's Success, CIO greatness is not just about understanding the products, but at a fundamental level, understanding the drivers of how the business creates value for the customers, what do customers care about, and what is the business doing to meet those underlying needs that get reflected in the products. Very well said, Michael. Here, here. Everybody, you have been watching CXO Talk. We've been speaking with Peter High. He is the author of this excellent book getting to nimble. You know, when I invite guests to come on CXO Talk, you should know I'm pitched constantly, endlessly, all the time. And 
if I hold up a book and I say it's a good book, I really think it's a good book. So you should check it out. Peter, thank you so much for taking time and for sharing your, your insight and experience with us today. Michael, it's been an honor. I, as I say, I've been a, a, a great fan of your work and I'm honored now to be a little bit of a part of it. You're very kind. Everybody, thank you for watching. For the folks who asked questions, we really appreciate your questions. We're glad that you did. Before you go, subscribe to our YouTube channel and hit the subscribe button at the top of our website. Have a great day, everybody. Take care. Bye-bye.